I'm glad to be with you today. I'm grateful for technology, um, but it's difficult. One thing I said to Amy uh, as I was getting ready this morning, I said, I don't like preaching, sitting down. So here I am in our family room, uh, sitting down. I'm going to do my best, but trying to figure out where to put my paper, my, my manuscript um, is a little bit difficult. We're continuing this fall this series that we've been preaching through uh, this journey with Moses, leading the people from bondage into promised land. Um, we're almost there. We're almost to the end of this journey with them um, and Jesus. So we're following the, the Old Testament text prescribed by the lectionary and the text uh, of the Gospels prescribed by the lectionary. Amy and I are putting them together, preaching together. Uh, so from the Old Testament today, we come to the end. It's an interesting ending to the story. Now, of course, it's not the end. God continues working with the people, but it's the end of Moses' life. We read of the death of Moses in this story. They have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are now right on the cusp of entering into promised land. I'm going to tell you that we're not dealing with promised land today. There's a lot that can be said um, about promised land, a lot of critique about that, you know how difficult that issue of land is um, and that the land of Israel um, contested by the, the Jews and the Palestinians is, is the centerpiece of, of, of a lot of global tensions these days and has been for a long time. We're not dealing with that. We're dealing with the story as the people stand on the edge of promised land to go in. We're reading from the book of Deuteronomy today. We've been in Exodus, but we're reading the history from Deuteronomy today, the 34th chapter. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the, to the top of Pisgah. I'm fortunate enough to have been to Mount Nebo. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight looking over into Israel. You're standing in Jordan on Mount Nebo, and you're looking across uh, the Jordan River, uh, and, and across the valley and into Israel. And even though it's desolate and arid um, desert country, it's quite beautiful as you look into the land there. And so I've stood where Moses stood looking into that promised land, beautiful. Um, this is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed Moses the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, that's to the north, uh, all Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the way to Beersheba in the south, about 100 miles north to south, um, and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar, the land of Israel, about 100 miles north to south, about 50 miles east to west to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord said to Moses, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Now think about Moses, 40 years leading these people, complaining, grumbling, wandering in the wilderness, 40 years. They have finally made it to the mountaintop and they are looking over and God says, there it is, but you can't go in. Interesting, interesting text. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. No one knows. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. 
the Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Mo Moses was ended. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. And here we have now sort of the uh, obituary for Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all of his servants and his entire land and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. You've heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. My grandparents toiled in a textile mill in Joanna, South Carolina, eking out a meager living following the Great Depression. On one corner of the main street of that little town, the mill shadows an old cemetery. Headstones are twisted and sinking, broken, some are missing. But at the corner, there is a tomb for a modest cemetery, it's an ostentatious tomb, a granite house enshrining a solitary casket. As a child, I was always impressed to see that tomb. But what can a tomb tell you about the person buried there? Hold that question. What can a tomb tell you about the person buried there? I want to tell you two stories. Uh, I wrote about these recently, I want to tell you, I've been thinking a lot about leadership, what it is, what it's not, what it takes to be a great leader, a moral leader. It reminded me of two stories from my childhood, both relate to the same family from my South Carolina hometown, and that's not a coincidence. I entered Bell Street Middle School in 1975 filled with the sixth grade excitement and confusion that befits sixth grade. As the hormones rage, identity and sexuality seem intractably locked in the sack of clothes you are always outgrowing as a sixth grader. I had great friends in those days from good families, and we navigated that storm together, marching into Bell Street, excited and confused, and with enough swagger to set the world on fire. Some misplaced bravado led to this first lesson for me in leadership. I was with some of the guys and we were talking football, which was a full-time Clinton conversation in those days. And someone mentioned a high school player. Do y'all know so-and-so? Well, my response just tumbled out. Tumbled out of my confused and wannabe macho sixth grade mouth without thinking, yeah, he's a big old, and I used the N-word. It's the only time in my life. It just came out. I have a hard time telling you this story out loud. I am embarrassed to admit that even one time in 56 years, that filthy word has come out of my mouth. There are about a million English words, and I think this is the worst one, bar none. The word is hideous, but I said it. And then also tumbling out just as easily, Andy Walker said, Russ, why did you use that terrible word? You shouldn't say that. And that was it. I have never said it again. In a glance, I saw what leadership looks like. 
That's not easy to call out your friends. It's not easy to speak that kind of truth in love. It's not easy to provide moral leadership. And unless the words you speak are supported by a consistent life, words are just words. Now, such hollow words are plentiful and they are powerful. They are often harmful, but words with no backing can never be true. But I also knew how Andy treated everyone so I could see his leadership, not just hear his words. And I have never forgotten that lesson. Three years later, we were heading into Clinton High School and after a one year, uh, a successful one year career as a middle school quarterback, I had made a fateful decision. And I say fateful because in Clinton, South Carolina in 1978, choosing to march in the band instead of taking the snaps and running the offense, well, that felt like betting on the wrong horse, picking an ill-fated destiny. One day I was at Andy Walker's house he lived an easy bike ride for mine. I spent some time with him. Dr. Walker, his dad, was not our family's doctor, but his reputation preceded him. I saw Dr. Walker as old. He was not old, but I saw him as old and revered and wise. It's the only conversation I have ever had with Dr. Jim Walker, but he called me into his office and he said, sit down, I want to talk to you. And he said, I understand that you have decided not to play football next year. And I probably stammered, um, yes, sir. Well, you need to think about that, he said. You're good out there. When you're on the field, things happen. You need to think about that. Well, 42 years later, I'm still thinking about that. Even though I did not take Dr. Walker's advice, my decision was right for me, but what he said and his leadership has never left me. He took the time. He went out of his way. He reached out to a kid he thought had some potential. He spoke a kind word of challenge and encouragement. I still feel the strength of his confidence. Now they say actions speak louder than words, but words are also action. Leadership is about speaking good words wise and encouraging words, words spoken with compassionate strength, calm and courage, and words that are defended by a life of integrity and honor, honesty and empathy. My middle school football coach for that year taught me that you play like you practice. And that truth is just as true in the church and in the country club, in the boardroom, in the office, in the school hallways and the halls of power, that's just as true there as it is on the football field. You play like you practice. Leaders speak with words and with lives of moral integrity. True leaders. Immoral people do not make moral leaders. I'm grateful for the leadership I learned from Dr. James Walker and his son, my friend, Andy. I heard it in their words, which could be trusted because of their example. We need more of that kind of moral leadership today. Moses is the exemplar of moral leadership for the Jewish people. 
The epitaph from the historian of Deuteronomy says, never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, many traits of leadership are extolled in today's cultural discourse. Power, savvy, charisma, decisiveness, power. But the reason Moses is remembered generation after generation is that Moses knew God. God knew Moses. At least two more truths can be gleaned from this story of the death of the great leader. They are not necessarily what we say of our so-called leaders, but I still place a priority on biblical wisdom and not just for the spiritual life. I still think the Bible offers transcendent guidance for individuals and nations for religious and secular wisdom, religious and secular leadership, if only we could hear. The first lesson from the text comes with Moses standing on the top of Mount Nebo, looking west into this land of promise. The journey began in bondage with the destination held out on the horizon. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. And for 40 long years, they sought it, wandering, wondering, hoping, doubting, every turn bringing bitter expectation. Today, we stand with the leader, that prize finally in sight from Dan to Beersheba, Jericho to the Mediterranean Sea. But Moses, the leader, would not step foot into that promise. He led his people. He died with his eyes on the prize. But a vision is always bigger than its leader, always beyond personality, always more than one person. It's about the common good, the people, life and liberty and well-being for all. Leadership owns a vision that stretches beyond any one life. And the second lesson for today is implied by an odd feature in the story of Israel's greatest leader. Moses was buried in Moab, but no one knows his burial place to this day. The Hebrew verb is not passive, though it's translated passive. He was buried, but the active voice Uh, of the Hebrew offers another hint of the intimacy of friendship between Moses and God. God buried Moses in an unmarked grave. In the corner of an old cemetery in Joanna, South Carolina, stands an ostentatious granite tomb enshrining one solitary casket. The tomb is designed to face the main street placed at the gate entrance to the cemetery, and a name is emblazoned across the stone gable of that tomb. But for the life of me, I cannot tell you today whether the name begins with an A or a Z. Ironic, don't you think? The man who had that tomb built obviously intended to be remembered. So what can a tomb tell you about the person buried there? Moses is one of the most prominent names in all of human history, and he does not even have a headstone. Moses is remembered not because he raised his own name, built himself a great monument, 
but because he was a moral leader whom the Lord knew face to face. Morality, selfless vision, humility. Scripture teaches us what true leadership looks like. May it be so. Amen. So I'll take you on the journey with Jesus in just a minute around this topic. But before I do, let me say this. I've been listening to calming podcasts on my daily walks the last couple of weeks. I've basically turned the news off and turned soul healing music and podcasts on for the hours that I'm not working. I've told you about reading about our ability to process bad news. We were made to handle negative stuff that comes our way. We were just not made to handle it all at the same time. In one of Nadia Bolt's Weber's rant and praise prayers recently, she included this sentence that has stuck with me. I don't think you created us to be able to metabolize such a constant stream of bad news every day, Lord. So a couple of weeks ago, I decided something had to go in my bad news department. It was the news. Oh, I catch the headlines and I try to stay informed, but I just turn off the constancy of it. A few minutes is enough. So I've turned to old podcasts with poets like Mary Oliver and Wendell Berry. It's been a balm for my weary mind, body, and spirit. Yesterday on my long walk, I listened to a Brene Brown uh, podcast talking with Krista Tippett in her podcast on being, which I highly recommend. I had been giving some thought to the text and topic for today on our journey with Moses and Jesus, and I knew that Russ and I were going to take these two passages and consider the theme of leadership as our focus. So in the middle of this podcast, out of nowhere, it was not the topic of the podcast, Brene Brown chases a small little rabbit and gets to talking about leadership and my ears perked up. She said, I see a shifting in, corp in the corporate sector right now with the Me Too movement and this reckoning that we're having. The corporate sector is taking firm and hard stands around this while we see almost zero movement from our elected officials and leaders. She goes on to note that we can really apply this to many topics that there's one part of our corporate world that is uh, doing training and implicit bias and doing good work and, and really calling attention to things that our national leaders are, are not doing as much with. And she and Krista Tippett wondered, are we looking for leadership in the wrong places? As followers of the way of Jesus, we first look to him and then we turn and look to each other, other followers of Jesus, to see how leadership works. Because Jesus always, always, always leads with love. From Matthew's gospel, the 22nd chapter. You will know this. You'll be able to repeat it and say it by heart. But here's the text from the lectionary for today. When the Pharisees heard that he had listened, uh-uh. When the Pharisees learned that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, 
ask him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Diana, but Diana Butler Bass has written a very timely and important piece this week for this text and this moment entitled The Simplest Thing, Love God, Love Neighbor. She relays that as we live in these very particular difficult days, one thing that has been a great help to her is reading the Bible. Particularly, she is often surprised, as are we, that when she reads the lectionary text for each week, she is struck that the words on the page have been exactly what is needed for this present moment. How could they have known all those years ago when they put the lectionary together that this is what we would need for this particular day? So it's important, she notes, to realize that today, today, right this minute, Millions of Christians all over the whole wide world are reading this specific passage from Matthew's gospel, where Jesus emphatically, unequivocally, and categorically reminds us that the greatest and most important thing to remember is to love, to love God, to love neighbor. They are equal in importance. Diana Butler Bass says, love God and love your neighbor appear in both Hebrew scripture and in the Christian New Testament. In this Sunday story, when challenged to rank them, Jesus was being tested. And when challenged to rank them, he scored high marks on that test. Jesus was unwilling to rank them. And he wove the commands together into one single greatest commandment. The call to love God is the heart of faith, and yet it is not disembodied. Loving God manifests itself in love of neighbor. To be a good Jew or a good Christian means to be a person with a rightly directed heart and ready hands to aid one's neighbor. She goes on to say that these were the very first lessons she learned as a child growing up in faith. And in times of deep distress and fear and anxiety and unrest, she needed to be reminded in this very important moment, this moment today, she needed to be reminded about this basic and foundational part of faith. As she puts it, as I read the words, I breathed easier and felt a soulful spaciousness. Love God. Love neighbor. It cleared the clutter, reminding my weary spirit of an ancient wisdom. These words have sounded forth for millennia. Through political crises, through times of violence, through pandemics and sufferings, and many, many a dark winter. And they have guided humankind toward justice, peace, and healing, shining their bright light in the worst of times. I want to look to our leaders for this kind of insight and practice, 
but I'm almost always disappointed in their lack of reflection of these basic lessons of goodness. So y'all, I'm looking to you and you're looking to me and we're looking to each other to be the kind of leaders that lead with love. Do your words about others reflect the love of neighbor that is the greatest commandment? Do your actions toward others indicate a groundedness in the love of God? Do your social media posts spew love or hate? Hmm. Lead with love. Tell me what you love, who you love, how you love, and I will know what you despise without you ever saying it. If love is our guide and our motivator, then we will despise anything and anyone who is opposed to loving ways. If love is our guide and motivator, then we will despise anything and anyone who is opposed to loving inclusion and loving acceptance and loving welcome. Leadership looks like love. I'm looking to you. You're looking to me. We're looking to each other to find the kind of leaders that can change the world. It's that plain and that simple. So may we each one be that kind of leader. The world needs us and is waiting on us to lead with love. May it be so. Amen.